This Bible reading is from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. It is on page 956 in the Pew Bibles. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We have previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for prayers from people, nor from you or anyone else even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached to the gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each other as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed a work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, because imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus, you suffered from your, you suffered from your own people the same things those treasures suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and a hospital to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, please keep your Bibles open as we continue our series on 1 Thessalonians. Last week we uh, looked at uh, Paul's uh, first uh, chapter. It was a gospel-centered uh, uh, church uh, that was in Thessalonia, uh, Thessalonica. Uh, today we look at how uh, Paul's ministry was a gospel-centered ministry. Let me pray for us and we'll uh, get into it. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our God and our church is the bride of Christ. We pray that as we gather as your people, with scriptures open, uh, that we may hear your word, that we might seek to live lives worthy of the gospel. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was growing up, my great-grandmother lived with us. Uh, she was the nicest person you'd ever meet. Uh, but she didn't go out very much, uh, not only uh, uh, because she was old, but because she only spoke one language, and that was Hakka, uh, which is the Chinese dialect I spoke growing up. Uh, but there was something unusual about her as well. Uh, she didn't have any teeth. 
Uh, I didn't know why until recently. I was chatting to my grandma a couple months ago, and she started telling me some of uh, her stories from her childhood. So I asked her, why, why uh, was great-grandma without teeth? Uh, why didn't she have any teeth? Uh, now, to understand the story, you need to understand some background. Uh, you see, my great-grandmother uh, entered an arranged marriage with my great-grandfather. Uh, he had already migrated from China to Vietnam to the country and established himself there. And so when my great-grandmother uh, went to live with him, uh, she moved to the countryside of Vietnam, but she didn't speak any Vietnamese. She only spoke Hakka. Uh, and as the story goes, she had a sore tooth. Uh, and her sore tooth had been niggling at her for a while. Uh, and one day, a man on a bike uh, rode into the village. And he uh, uh, offered himself as a dentist uh, to anyone in the village who needed some help uh, to fix any issues that they had with their teeth. Uh, my great-grandfather heard about it. Uh, tells my great-grandmother to go and see this man uh, to get her sore tooth sorted. And so she does. She uh, goes to the man. The man looks at her uh, tooth and promises her, her that he'll fix it. Uh, but what he'll need to do is to extract that sore tooth. And so she uh, accepts that. And one thing leads to another. He extracts every single of her teeth. Because extracting one tooth was only going to make him so much money, but extracting all her teeth would make him a lot more money. And so there you go, my grandma was without teeth from her 20s, and she lived to her 90s. Uh, you couldn't make uh, this sort of story up even if you tried, could you? My great-grandmother was conned. She lost all her teeth in her 20s, and apparently that's what happened all the time. Uh, these so-called dentists would travel from village to village and extract teeth for a profit. Uh, they promise you a, a better teeth, a better life, relief from pain. Uh, but what you'd be left with is less teeth, and in the case with my great-grandmother, no teeth at all. Now, in a similar way, 2,000 years ago, back in the first century in the Roman Empire, there were also people like that. They would travel from town to town, village to village, city to city, and make lots of promises. They weren't dentists and promised you pain-free teeth. They were religious frauds and philosophers. Some even pretended to be Christians, uh, like the so-called super-apostles that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Uh, these wise teachers, religious frauds, and philosophers of the time promised you a better life. Uh, but they, what they were really after was your money, sexual favor, or self-glory. Uh, this was, uh, this was uh, so common that the second century uh, satirist Lucian wrote an entire book, uh, an entire work, an entire play about it, uh, about people who went about the country practicing quackery and sorcery. And people fell for them uh, and followed them, gave them money, gave them their bodies, revered them, and even celebrated uh, them. Uh, this was the world in which Paul lived. The world in which Paul went about his ministry as he went from town to town. And so if you remember back to Acts chapter 17, which we looked at briefly last week, Paul had just come from uh, the city of Philippi. He lands in Thessalonica after going through a couple of other cities. He goes to the synagogue, reasons with the Jews at the synagogue from their scriptures, the Old Testament that we have, that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Now some of them believe. Some of the Jews believe. They put their faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah that they've been waiting for, but some don't. And so what would have happened? Well, the believing Jews would then stop going to the synagogue and start going to church. And, and, and if that were to happen, what would happen? 
Well, the Jews who didn't believe, the Jews who kept meeting at the synagogue, would become jealous. And that's understandable, isn't it? As their synagogue got smaller and dwindled in size and the church down the road increased in number and their offering at their synagogue got smaller and the budget down the road at the church got larger and larger, they became jealous. And so what they did was that they drove Paul and Silas out of town. But they didn't, uh, 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 and after Paul and Silas left town, that didn't stop them from causing more trouble. Because after Paul and Silas left town, the fledging church continued to meet. And as the Christians continued to meet, the Jews continued in their jealousy. And so in order to undermine Paul's authority and his gospel, the Jews determined to discredit him. They launched a malicious smear campaign and tried to convince the new converts that Paul was nothing more than a trickster, a con man, a false prophet going from town to town seeking to deceive people. And so, as we'll see in today's passage and next week's passage, what they might have accused Paul of saying and doing in Paul's response to them. From the start of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 3, it's possible for us to reconstruct their slander in Paul's defense of his ministry in Thessalonica. So in today's passage, Paul's basically saying this, I'm not a charlatan or false prophet. I'm trying to please God. I'm not after your money or your body or for glory. I want you to live lives worthy of the gospel. And the way Paul offers up his defense is not simply with words, but with witnesses. He calls on witnesses to the ministry that he had with them. And so we see this in verse 10. Uh, So please have your Bibles open. Verse 10, you are witnesses, he says. He says, you Thessalonian Christians, you who I lived with and spent time with, you are my witnesses. But not just you, and so is God. And what are they witnesses of? What is God a witness of? Of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. That is Paul saying, I've got nothing to hide. I'm not a common, I'm not a trickster, I'm not a, a, a false prophet. I'm not a a religious fraud. Before you and before God, you are all witnesses that I live such a holy and righteous and blameless life that what you see is what you get. Paul lived a life that lived up to scrutiny. There's been no ulterior motive, no false promises, no conspiracy. They listened to what he had to say and he was faultless. They watched the way he lived and he was blameless. I remember going to a a Christian rally many years ago. Now, the truth is, I don't remember what the preacher said at this rally. But I remember, as I was preparing this sermon, what he did. I remember him for all the wrong reasons. You see, the the preacher at this rally, uh, as he was speaking, the microphone played up. The sound wasn't uh, to his comfort. And so he got upset. Uh, In the middle of the talk, uh, he, he basically stopped and told the sound engineers off for not getting it right. Hey, he was visibly agitated, and I think everyone noticed that he was, and he noticed that they noticed that he was, and so he explained to all of us uh, that he's very sensitive to the microphone. Now, that never happened with Paul, because microphones didn't exist in his time. Now, that was a joke. I thought that was pretty good. But anyway, jokes aside, in all the weeks Paul spent with them, The Thessalonians could see his life. They spent time with him, listening to him, living life with him, doing life with him. 
and he reflected the gospel in his life. It was a life of sacrifice and love, a life of service, a life not of greed or self-glory, but of pleasing God and loving them. Paul was holy, righteous and blameless, and God knows it. And they know it. God's a witness, they're a witness. And the fact that they're Christians is proof of that. So verse 1. You know, brothers, see, you'll notice in this passage, he keeps reminding them, you know, I'm telling you what you know. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. And what's the result that Paul's talking about here? Well, it tells us at the end of this passage, from verse 13, we also thank God continually because... When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. That is, they became Christians. That's the result of Paul's ministry. Because the word, of God, because the word that Paul preached to them wasn't the word of some philosopher or religious fraud. It wasn't an interpretation of scripture, but it was the very word of God. And he knows they've received the word of God because it's at work in him, in them. And how does he know it's at work in them? Because they're suffering for the gospel. They're doing something that no one else would do, and that is to suffer for the gospel, just like the believing Jews had been in Judea. So verse 14, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffer from your own people, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in the effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. You see, for Paul, if you believe the gospel, then you'd preach the gospel. And if you believe the gospel, then you live out the gospel. You live a life worthy of the gospel. Uh, recently I heard a person say, um, there are actually five gospels. But most people have only read the last one. Uh, you, you have the four gospels in the Bible, in our scriptures. And the fifth gospel is your life. That's the one that people around you have read. It's a challenging thought, isn't it? The way, do the way we live, do the decisions we make, do the ambitions we have commend the gospel to our friends and family? Do they see Jesus in us? Like the Apostle Paul? Or do our lives bring shame on Jesus and cause people to reject the gospel like the preacher at the rally? And so if Paul wasn't motivated by greed or sex, glory or fame, then what was it that motivated Paul when he came to Thessalonica? Well, Paul tells us he wanted to please God in verse 10. He wanted to help them live lives worthy of the gospel in verse 12, even if it meant suffering for the gospel. So before arriving in Thessalonica, you might remember the story when Paul and Silas were uh, imprisoned in Philippi for the gospel. The earth shook, the prison gates flung open, the chains came off, 
the jailer saw this, thought everyone had fled, and was about to kill himself, but Paul tells him, don't, we're still here. And the jailer becomes a Christian. You see, even though Paul and Silas had just been imprisoned for the gospel, it didn't stop them continuing to preach the gospel from city to city. They kept going from city to city to preach the gospel. Verse 2, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you this. He hears gospel in the face of strong opposition, despite suffering, despite strong opposition. Despite putting their lives on the line, they will still preach the gospel. For that was Paul's job, what he was called to do. You see, Paul tells them if he's willing to preach the gospel, even if it means suffering, it's not because he's trying to con them, but it's because he's been entrusted with the gospel. It's his job. Verse 3, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So God's given Paul the gospel. And his responsibility is to preach the gospel. Verse 4, we are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You see, Paul's not a people pleaser like these false prophets are, like these philosophers are, like these conmen are. He's not a people pleaser, but a God pleaser. And what about you? Are you a people pleaser? Or are you a God-pleaser? I mean, we all know the right answer, don't we? We want to all be able to say, oh, I'm a God-pleaser. But it's easier said than done. For example, when you find yourself in a new situation, like you've got a new job, or you're working with a new team, how long does it take for them to realize that you're actually a Christian? Or if you're hanging out with your friends and the topic of conversation uh, goes on to the LGBTIQ+, uh, do you offer your opinion and volunteer it and share your thoughts and your understanding of Scripture and the gospel that saves? You see, sometimes we prefer that people didn't know that we're Christians, don't we? Because we like to be liked. We want to be accepted. We don't want to be different. We would rather please people than God. But Paul's not like that. He always chooses to please God, even if it means rejection. He always chooses to please God, even if it means persecution. He always chooses to please God, even if it means imprisonment. And so if Paul's motivation was to please God, then it certainly wasn't for money or fame. Verse 5, you know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from anyone, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. So far from being a charlatan or a conman, a false prophet or religious fraud, Paul wanted nothing more than to please God. And that meant preaching the gospel to them, even if it meant suffering for the gospel for them. 
the jealous Jews might have accused Paul of trying to uh, take from them. But Paul reminds them that he did the complete opposite. Rather than take for them, he gave himself for them, just like a loving parent. Now he goes on to use two imageries, the imagery of a nursing mother and a caring father. And so how, how does Paul, how was Paul like a nursing mother to them? Verse 7. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Uh, when Kylie was in uh, labor with Maddie, our firstborn, my respect for women, for mothers in particular, skyrocketed. But it didn't stop there. It only continued to grow and grow as Kylie learned to breastfeed and with the constant care, day and night, that she would offer Maddie, my respect for mothers just grew and grew. Being a mother means sacrifice from what pregnancy and labor and breastfeeding does to their bodies, to the routine of feeding an infant every so, a few hours, waking up in the middle of the night to make sure that the baby's well fed with a clean nappy and a fresh set of clothes. And that's what Paul was like with the infant church in Thessalonica. He toiled so that they had what they needed. He labored so that they were always cared for. Verse 9, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. You see, far from taking and taking and taking from the church, as he's been accused of, Paul is saying, I've been giving and giving and giving to this church, even if it meant sleepless nights and hard work day and night. But Paul wasn't just like a nursing mother to them. He was also like a caring father to them. He was a caring father to them so that they might live lives worthy of the gospel. Verse 11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is a challenge for all of us, isn't it? Especially for us dads. Because it can be easy to urge your kids to listen and obey, to do the right thing, and even to live lives worthy of God. But what about encouraging our kids when they're down? What about comforting our kids when they're sad? This doesn't mean that mums don't do these things. I think mums are naturally more encouraging and comforting than we are as dads. But maybe it's a wake-up call. For us dads to take the lead, to be dads who can see what's happening for our kids, maybe when it's at their tipping point, a time when our kids have had enough and things aren't going well, a time of real discouragement for them, a time when they're just tired and have had enough, and what they need is their dad, the dad who would be by their side to offer words of encouragement and comfort as they urge them to live lives worthy of the gospel. A couple of days ago, I read a story about Alex. Alex is uh, from Hong Kong. He's, it's not his real name. He lives in Sydney. 
He came over uh, to Australia as an international student to study postgrad law at the University of Sydney. Last year he was walking through Central Station and he was stopped by two men. Uh, they were uh, friendly, they just wanted to ask him if he had a moment to answer some questions for a survey that they were doing. Uh, he obliged and he helped them out, he answered their questionnaire. Uh, after the questionnaire, the two men asked if he wanted to catch up for coffee after work. Uh, since he didn't have friends in Sydney, uh, he thought, why not? And so after work, he went and caught up with them for coffee, and uh, they got to know each other a little. They, uh, Alex thought to himself, oh, they, they seem quite nice. So when they asked him, uh, would you like to join us for Bible study, he thought, well, why not? After all, he had some uh, Bible background. He was uh, brought up as a Catholic, and he wanted to make some new friends in this new city. So he starts going to their Bible studies. It was a smallish, informal Bible study. But after a few months, he was then asked by an older gentleman, uh, would you like to join a bigger Bible study group? Uh, you'll require more time, more commitment, but you'll meet more people. Uh, it's more intense, though, because if, if you miss a class, you have to do catch-up classes. Well, Alex decided to commit anyway, and it soon took over his life. And at these big gatherings, he'd go along into a theory of sorts uh, with about 100 international students, mostly. Uh, the teachers were mostly Korean. Uh, Alex remembers that at one point, uh, the teacher casually mentions that, oh, we, we actually have to hire this venue. Uh, it, it costs quite a bit of money. And so if you don't mind contributing to that, that, that would help us out, maybe $30 a fortnight. Uh, Alex thought that that was a little pricey, but he could afford that. And so since he enjoyed the company and the studies, he thought, well, why not? So he started giving money to this church. But then a few red flags began to cause Alex to question everything. Uh, the teachers would often say, what you're learning from the Bible is what the Bible is saying. We're right, and if you hear otherwise, they're wrong. It's the devil working through them. So don't listen to anyone else. Just listen to us. So he thought that was a bit strange. But the other thing that was strange for him was uh, that he said, uh, uh, they, they said, uh, you have to keep what we're doing a secret because other people don't understand what we're doing. This is really important thing, uh, important. Don't listen to other people. Don't tell people because then they'll just say bad things about you and say bad things about us. So, so keep, keep what we're doing a secret. Eventually, Alex Googled what he was being taught to understand the doctrines a bit more carefully and clearly. And as he Googled, the penny finally dropped. He realized that he had joined a Korean Christian church cult called Shincheonji. Uh, you might have heard about them during the COVID. Um, uh, they, 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 their group was a big reason why COVID spread in South Korea. The Shinjionji Church of Jesus was established in 1984 by South Korean Lee Man-hee. He claims to be the second coming of Jesus. With over 200,000 members in South Korea alone, they're now on the streets of Australia recruiting members. So you might bump into them at Central Station in Sydney or at Melbourne Central Station in Melbourne. 
You see, friends, my great-grandmother might have been conned by this so-called dentist. And lots of people in the first century might have given their money and their bodies to religious frauds and philosophers. But even today, in the 21st century, there are cults, there are religious frauds, there are philosophers who want your money and your time and your bodies, and leaders who amass a great following, like Lee Man He, able to recruit even highly intelligent people, like postgrad law students. Not only does Lee Man He want people to follow him as the true Messiah, he was recently found guilty of embezzling six and a half million dollars. Not only does he require his followers to go through strong levels of intensive conversion, he wants his followers to keep it all a secret. But you see, Paul wasn't like that. He was an open book. What you saw is what you got. He was holy, righteous, and blameless. God can testify to that, and so can the Christians in Thessalonica. Paul didn't want people to follow him and to see him in any amazing light, but simply a follower of Jesus entrusted with the gospel to preach the gospel to them, even if it meant suffering for the gospel, so that they might be saved. Paul wasn't greedy and didn't want anything from them. He worked day and night so that they wouldn't be a burden to them. He won't be a burden to them. Paul's gospel doesn't demand strong levels of intensive conversion, but simply faith in Christ. Friends, Paul's defense of his ministry is a defense of the gospel and a model of ministry for us, a gospel-centered ministry. So friends, let's not shy away from the gospel, but live lives worthy of the gospel, so that we might say with our apostle Paul, you are witness, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Amen.